0: I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. It's widely accepted that protecting civil rights is a cornerstone of the federal role in American education. But exactly how and how far the federal government should go in carrying out that responsibility, well, that's another story. At the center of those debates is the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. More than 60 civil rights groups recently banded together to issue a letter urging the incoming Trump administration to pick a leader for OCR with a strong track record of fighting discrimination against vulnerable students. What are they worried about, and how should the new administration respond? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next. And I'm joined today by Shep Melnick, the Thomas P. O'Neill Jr. Professor of American Politics at Boston College. Shep's the author of a new post on the Ednext blog entitled, How Civil Rights Enforcement Got Swept into the Culture Wars and What a New Administration Can Do About It. Shep, welcome to the Ednext podcast. It was a pleasure to be here. So we're here to talk about a blog post, but I should mention that the Office of Civil Rights is more than a casual interest for you. You're currently working on a book on the regulation of gender equality in education under Title IX, in which OCR looms large. So I hope you won't mind if I ask you to start out with the basics for listeners who aren't as familiar with these issues. What is the Office of Civil Rights and what does it do?
1: Sure, the Office for Civil Rights and Education is really quite a small office, about 500 people. And its responsibilities include enforcing Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 that prohibit gender discrimination by any educational facility that receives federal funds. And on top of that, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that prohibits those who receive federal funds from discriminating on the basis of race or national origin. And that has been interpreted to include Uh, discrimination against uh, students who do not use English as their first language. Then there are some other uh, uh, laws that OCR enforces. Most importantly, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And in fact, about half of the cases that OCR investigates involve disability. And so
0: OCR is charged with responding to complaints that individuals bring against educational institutions when they feel like those requirements are not being followed?
1: Exactly. Starting in around the 1970s, the Office for Civil Rights started the practice of uh, trying to respond to every complaint that it received. Uh, largely that was because of a court order that OCR was under at the time, but that's really become their primary task of responding to these complaints, which means that uh, what they spend their resources on depends in large part on what comes in the door. So that's wh- that's the n- number one task. The number two task is trying to give educational institutions around the country, which includes 14,000 uh, school districts and about over 7,000 higher education institutions, some idea of what is required of them to comply with these anti-discrimination laws that are quite vague. So uh, schools desperately need to know what is required of them, and therefore OCR's policymaking role is very large.
0: And exactly what OCR believes the law requires can change over time as a new administration comes into office. And we saw an example of that that brought OCR into the headlines recently when Betsy DeVos, in her first major action as education secretary, withdrew guidance from the Obama administration that sought to guarantee transgender students access to bathrooms that match their gender identity. Mm -hmm. It was also reported that she resisted the move but lost an internal debate over the matter with Attorney General Jeff Sessions. What exactly happened there and why does it matter?
1: Well, what exactly happened between the two of them we're not very clear on. Um, I will say that OCR is a particularly non-transparent organization. Uh, So exactly how they make their policies is unclear. One of the important factors in that transgender letter was that it was issued jointly by the Department of Justice and OCR. Therefore, the Attorney General had as much authority in that area as the Secretary of Education. Another important factor in the transgender dispute was that a judge in Texas had already enjoined enforcement of that letter uh, and the Department of Justice had stepped in a few days earlier to say that they would not appeal that stay. So, in effect, the Department of Justice had already made the decision that would not be
0: enforced. And given that a judge had already held up any implementation of the Obama guidance, mm-hmm. there was actually no change in the policy status quo.
1: That's correct. And another thing that's important to notice is to build on what you were saying about changes in administration, the letter on transgender rights, had been issued less than a year before, uh, and it really came out of the blue. Uh, No one had ever claimed before that um, the legislation passed in 1972 required schools to assign students to bathrooms, to uh, overnight accommodations to sports on the base of their gender identity rather than on their biological sex. This was really quite new. And that's a good example of the way in which uh, new administration uh, has changed the interpretation of the law. The other uh, way in Title IX that is particularly important is the regulations about sexual harassment and sexual violence.
0: So that was another area in which the Obama administration sort of extended the its interpretation of what the law requires under the auspices of uh, preventing gender discrimination.
1: Exactly. the Every democratic administration has tended to expand the interpretation of these laws to some extent, but none to the extent of the Obama administration. That includes not just these two issues, sexual harassment and transgender rights, but uh, school discipline under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. uh, They really expanded their efforts to enforce uh, rules on English language learners, uh, to have uh, quite extensive new rules on the distribution of resources and how that might have a disparate impact on racial minorities. So the Obama administration was really very much more aggressive than any other administration.
0: And we know from looking at the history of OCR that sometimes these changes in interpretation can stick. I'm thinking early on of what was required with respect to language minority Mm -hmm. students um, under the Civil Rights Act. OCR said that you needed to provide these students with access to the curriculum in their own language. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court also ultimately upheld the interpretation that OCR came up with on the famous Lao case. And mm-hmm. so, you know, these types of uh, actions can end up having major policy consequences.
1: Exactly. The language case really shows the stickiness of these rules um, with one important caveat, which is that often. Uh, these rules get expanded, usually during Democratic administrations, but not always. The The rules that you talked about for language originated during the Nixon administration. Mm-hmm. But um, the Reagan administration and then the administration of George W. Bush put very little effort into enforcing these requirements. And Generally, the pattern has been that uh, Democratic administrations will expand the definition of non-discrimination, Republican administrations will ease up on enforcement, and then Democratic administration will come in again and be more aggressive enforcement, plus add some new rules.
0: Now, as I understand it, you've had some concerns about the steps taken by OCR under President Obama, and those concerns have as much to do with the process the agency used as with the substance of its actions. Most of its major initiatives took the form of so-called Dear Colleague Letters. Can you help us understand what a Dear Colleague Letter is and why you've been concerned about how they're increasingly being used?
1: Sure. I believe that the relationship between the procedures and some of the substantive difficulties is quite tight. So let's start with uh, the expectations uh, of rulemaking by OCR at the beginning. Title IX of of the Education Amendments allows OCR to engage in rulemaking. And in legal terms, that has quite a clear meaning, which is it's governed by the Administrative Procedures Act. The Administrative Procedures Act lays out a model for how you make these important regulations. Basically says that first, the agency has to set forth a proposal of what they want to do and why they want to do it. It then has to submit this to the public for comments and usually for hearings, then the agency has to come back and explain what it's going to keep, what it's going to change, why, and how it responds to all significant comments. In the process, it is subject to interagency review, especially by the Office of Management and Budget, and by review by other agencies within the department, uh, the, the policy office in Department of Education. Now, Title IX adds another requirement to this that's quite unusual, which says that all of these regulations have to be signed by the President of the United States, uh, indicating that Congress thought that these were really important regulations and demanded political accountability. The last time that OCR did this under Title IX with a major rule was 1975. Since then, it has continually reduced the procedural requirements. So the, Dear colleague letters that are at the heart of all the current controversies are simply letters that are written to the leaders of educational institutions saying, here is the guideline, here's what you must do. And I think it's quite ironic that they say, if you have any comments, you can let us know now. That's the reverse of what is usually done, comments first and then uh, policymaking, but this is uh, just the opposite of that. Now, um, the legal status of these letters is quite controversial. Some people in the Department of Education said they are mere guidance, uh, therefore not binding. The, office, the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights has said they are binding. And of course, what school district wants to ignore these uh, and be charged with uh, violating the law Look, school districts are looking for certainty, and they look to these Dear Colleague letters for guidance. Uh, so they are, in practice, binding, regardless of whether a court would say you must follow them.
0: Now, the very fact that the Obama administration's most controversial steps at OCR mm-hmm. took the form of Dear Colleague letters means that they would be relatively easy for the new administration to undo. They can simply mm-hmm. rescind them without going through any public comment process that would be required if the rule had been promulgated as a regulation. But you argue that simply rescinding the letters they disagree with wouldn't be the right approach for the Trump administration to take. Why?
1: Right. On the transgender rights, that was a relatively easy one because it was quite new. Uh, There had been very few court decisions on it, and most schools had not invested many resources in complying. For other regulations, especially under Title IX, the the sexual harassment, sexual violence, and athletics, there are two other factors. One is that to some extent, especially in the athletic area, um, these have been endorsed by federal courts, especially especially the First Circuit, an important decision involving Brown University. For sexual harassment, sexual violence... Most schools have already devoted a great deal of effort to try to comply with these regulations. They have created very extensive Title IX compliance offices internally. They have built up constituencies within their schools to support this. I think this was a very shrewd strategy on the part of the Office of Civil Rights, to build up these offices so it would be very hard politically ever to tear them down. On top of that, For the sexual harassment, sexual violence regulations, Uh, let me be blunt, who would be a worse person to attack uh, efforts to reduce sexual violence than the current president of the United States? Someone who has bragged about things that quite clearly constitute sexual violence. So he is the worst person in the world who could try to promote this. Most importantly, it's a serious problem. I believe, and many other people believe, that OCR went way overboard in um, reducing due process requirements, infringing upon freedom of speech, and trying to substitute their understanding of sex education uh, for that of universities and schools. So the problem is, how can we get a better balance in these rules rather than how can we eliminate the whole thing.
0: And when you say due process requirements, of course, you're referring to requirements that would give someone accused of sexual violence uh, to respond to those accusations.
1: Exactly. The rules issued by the Office for Civil Rights required all schools to use the so-called preponderance of the evidence rule for adjudicating claims of sexual violence, um, in effect, for sexual assault or or even rape. That's a very low level of proof, Uh, 50.1% likelihood that this person is guilty of these charges. Uh, Many schools, including Harvard before this, used a clear and convincing evidence. So that has been one real flashpoint. Another has been, and I think probably more importantly, that OCR has really encouraged schools to use its so-called single investigator model, which means that a person who is appointed by the Title IX coordinator, investigates without a hearing, interviews witnesses, makes a recommendation, and the Office for uh, uh, Title IX Compliance is the only appeal. So this, is, this person really is judge, jury, investigator, and this office' primary job is showing to OCR that they're being really tough on sexual harassment and sexual violence. So that's a really bad model for trying to have some fairness in investigations and adjudication of these claims.
0: And so you're ultimately arguing that the only way to deal with some of those substantive problems is actually to go through a measured rulemaking process that finds a better solution that balances the rights of the accused Mm -hmm. and the accuser.
1: Exactly, because what that would do is not only get a better balance for these regulations, but would shed much more light on the nature of the problem. OCR these days, or for the past eight years, has made major claims about the prevalence of sexual violence without much evidence whatsoever. Uh, And one of the things this would do for OCR is to change the culture of the organization. Uh, OCR is very keen on changing the culture of universities. I think what's important is to change the culture of the organization so that they pay more attention to evidence, that they pay more attention to concerns of people who are being regulated, have a much broader view, and most importantly, open up this process uh, so that we know the rationale for these decisions. So I think we now have a good sense of what you'd like to see from the new administration.
0: Any sense as to how likely we are to see
1: it? The Trump administration um, always surprises us. Um, It is uh, unbelievably unpredictable, uh, uh, reflecting, it seems, the proclivities of the person at the top. I'm not a big fan of President Trump. Um, On top of that, uh, it has been extremely slow to appoint key members of sub-Cabinet positions. We don't have any idea right now who will be the Assistant Secretary for civil rights. That is a key position. There are about five political appointees in the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, uh, Who sits in those positions will be key to answering that question. Um, But I guess my main um, advice to the people who do sit there is that they have to remember that people have an enormous amount of distrust in the Trump administration on these issues, and I think for good reason. Therefore, they have to bend over backward to be careful, to be transparent, and to really look at evidence on the issue and to involve many players who are involved. And I think that they will find that there are a lot of people on the left as well as on the right, who have very great concerns about this. This is an, civil libertarians on the left have been equally concerned about these issues. So if they can be concerned about following the law, especially the Supreme Court decisions on this, which were a bit different from OCR, uh, and uh, having broad public participation, I think that will serve them very well.
0: My guest today has been Shep Melnick, professor of American politics at Boston College his blog post on the Office for Civil Rights in the Trump era is available now at educationnext.org. And his book, entitled The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education, will be published by the Brookings Institution Press this fall. Shep, thanks for taking the time to join me. Oh, Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.